This podcast is a production of Schweitzer, a United Methodist Church, transforming lives by making disciples of Jesus Christ. Well, good morning. We are going to Ephesus today, but before we do, I want you to look at these four different buildings and think about when you were born or when you were growing up, what was the tallest building in the United States? Was it the Empire State Building or was it the Sears Tower or was it the Twin Towers or today the Tower of Freedom? What was the tallest building when you were born and growing up as a child? Well, if you were entering Ephesus in the first century by sea, you would have been impressed. You would have seen these beautiful stone pillar structures. You would have seen this theater that was carved out in the hillside, but more than anything else, you would have been impressed with Artemis, uh, the temple to Artemis of the Ephesians. Artemis of the Ephesians, this structure was the largest building in the Greek world. 400 and some feet long, 200 and some feet wide. It was one of the seven wonders of the world. It was seven times the, excuse me, four times the size of the Parthenon in Athens. You would not have ever missed it. So to understand what Paul does in bringing the good news of Jesus, he's always under the shadow of the religious cults and the financial prowess of Artemis and the temple. Now, when we went there this fall, it was beautiful to be able to visit Ephesus. It was an amazing city. It's the most excavated city in modern-day Turkey. And as you go there and you journey there, it's a city of colonnades, statues. The ruins are incredible. The, the street in which we walked, about 20 feet wide, was the street in which the Apostle Paul walked in this magnificent city of Ephesus. And should you have been in a situation in first century Ephesus where you needed to relieve yourself, you would have gone to the Baz. And there, just in front of God and everyone, you would sit and enjoy. That is our own Linda Harper, who wanted her picture taken. Some people, you know, on the trip, they wanted to have their picture taken in front of some relic or some holy site. Linda says, take one of me in front of the Baz. So, Well, what we're doing today is... I'm going to walk with you through some of the excerpts that Paul writes in the book of Ephesians. Now, the Apostle Paul visits Ephesus in about the year 52 or 53, about 20 years, 25 years after Jesus was crucified and resurrected. Uh, A photo of Paul there. It's not an original photo, it's just a, you know. But here, here we have a picture of Paul. Get the image. He's 60-some years of age. He's writing from Rome back to Ephesus, back to the Ephesians, back to the believers, the followers of Jesus that he's known uh, 10 years or so before. And he's pouring out his heart. And, you know, when someone like this is facing death, and you've got to come back next week to figure out what happens to Paul, but you might think he's going to get sentimental, but he doesn't. You might think he would be writing his memoirs, but that's not what Ephesians is about. Ephesians dances with Paul's passion for the church 
and for Jesus Christ. And so as he writes to his friends, his brothers and sisters in the faith, back in Ephesus, he's no doubt thinking of these images and these places and these sites where he spent three years of his life. And so I can't read the book of Ephesians, a New Testament book, anymore the way I did once, having visited Ephesus. And what I want to do today is just walk with you through some of the sights and some of the words of the old Apostle Paul as he writes about the faith and the passion that he has in Jesus and the image he has for the church. Now the first one, again, Artemis, the great temple. He's living in that shadow. And in the shadow of Artemis, where every Ephesian would live, He writes these words about the church. In him, that is in Christ, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. You get get the idea? The temple of God, the church of God is not a building. It's not a building, folks. We, we spend a lot of money and time in upgrading this place, and it needs to be done. But every building or every inch on campus is, is a tool. The church is not a building. And the church is not a, a place you go. And the church is not a denominational label. Those are kind of idols that we construct. There was a nice Baptist woman that was here about uh, a year ago, and she was talking about her, she was very proud of her Baptist heritage, which is fine. But I'm kind of ornery. And so I said to her after service, I said, do you know that there's not going to be any Baptists in heaven? She took a lot of exception to that. (laughs) Oh, yes, there will. There will be Baptists in heaven. I said, no, there will not be any Baptists in heaven. And there won't be any Methodists or Presbyterians or Lutherans or any one of those names. Because there's only one name in which we'll be known by. And you see, the church, friends, is the place that God dwells. You are the church. We're the church. There's no more beautiful sight to me when the church is gathered together to worship Jesus. To see you extend your hands Uh, toward the direction and blessing of a baby to sing these songs this is where God dwells where the church gathered and where the church that scatters sent out into the world we're the temple of God we're the image of God we're the likeness of God as the body of Christ we're the living temple we're it And Paul says, you don't live under the temple of Artemis. You are the temple where the true God lives. Now, in the temple itself, there were all kinds of statues of Artemis. Artemis was the goddess. She was the goddess of fertility that goes back to the 4th or 5th centuries or millenniums before Christ. And this does not do justice to what she looks like. But in the temple, there's all kinds of different statues. How, How many of you have ever been to Bush Stadium? Many of you. At Bush Stadium, there's lots of statues of cardinals, right? But there is one statue. When cardinal fans want to meet up and they don't know where else to meet, they meet where? At Stan the Man's statue. 
Artemis of Ephesians, she had all kinds of statues in the temple all around the place, but there was one in particular. This one is nine feet tall. She's got a three-tiered crown. She has all kinds of depictions on her of uh, the zodiac and lions and goats and bulls. And on her person, there are pendlets, believed to be the scrota of a bull, this goddess of fertility. So this is the image, and what they would do is they would create then, the silversmith would create these little shrines of her, and you would buy these, and they would be quite expensive. They're made of pure silver. And you would take them to the temple, and you would bow before her, and you would lay your offering before her. This was the, religious, uh, this was the religion of, of Ephesians. This was the capitalism of Ephesians. A lot of people capitalized on religion. Is this a great country or what? And so in the midst of all that, what does Paul write? He, he writes these words about a different power and a different name. And he says that power is the same the power of God, that, of the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead. Artemis fell from heaven. That's the myth. Jesus rose from the dead. And he, seat, and he seated him at his right hand. He's at the right hand of God in the heavenly realms, far above all rule, authority, power, and dominion, and every name that can be invoked. Next slide. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. So just as the Ephesians would carry little shrines of Artemis around, what, what is it that's the witness to the world? Do you know there was a term that began to develop in the world during this time? And it was referred, it was the name that was given believers in Jesus, those who were followers of the way of Jesus. Do you know what that term was? It was given in Antioch, it was given in Jerusalem, it was given by outsiders looking at these followers of Jesus. They were called Christians. Christians. Do you know what Christian means in the Greek? It's fascinating. It means little Christ. And just as the shrines of Artemis had all these amazing elaborate depictions of who this God was, this goddess, here's the witness to the world, Christians. We are little Christs wherever we go. We, we bear the image of Christ and we carry Christ with us. And the, and the believers and the followers of Jesus were so authentic in the way that they lived their lives, they were called little Christs. And if these shrines to Artemis had all these depictions of zodiacs and animals and scrota, what's the depictions, the markings of we Christians? How do you identify and know a Christian when you see one? What's the markings of Jesus all over us? Well, the scripture says, 
Paul says elsewhere, the fruit of the Spirit, that the markings of Jesus all over us is love. Love's primary. How much love you got? How much love do you have for your brothers and sisters? How much love do you have for those who are opposing you? How much love do you have? How much joy do you have? How much peace and patience and kindness and goodness and generosity and faithfulness and meekness and kindness and purity of heart and mind and spirit? Some of the Beatitudes that Jesus speaks about. How much are we peacemakers in this world? And if there's ever a time where this world needs Christians to be Christian, to bear the image as a little Christ of the real thing, that time is now. That's what Paul's writing about when he writes to the Ephesians. Now, back when we were on our trip, we got to tour these amazing, beautiful, wealthy homes. And in these slides that you're watching right now, there were depictions of art that was incredible on the wall. There were mosaics on the floor. These, these have lasted um, 20 centuries and more. As we walk and we tour these places and we see the beautiful artwork and we see the mosaic, and Paul no doubt visited these places. He had some friends in high places that helped protect him that was in his corner, on his side in Ephesus. But Paul, as he writes to the church, he, he, he says that we are God's handiwork. As he writes to the Ephesians, he writes these words. For you are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. You are the, you are the craftsmanship of God. And the craftsmanship of God is not concerned about the beauty of statues or buildings or homes or houses or even places of worship. You are the craftsmanship of God. And for God, the most beautiful mosaic is the mosaic of the church where all the parts and the members of the church are in love with each other and working together in harmony as each of us build our part. That's the mosaic. That's the beautiful artwork that God is at work through the church. Now, another place that's very significant in Ephesus was the place where there was a menorah that was etched in stone. And you cannot see the menorah that's in this slide, but this is an actual stone, and, and it was a reminder of the presence of the Jewish faith in which Paul was a part of and came out of. And if you remember, Paul was one of those persons who went and took the faith to the non-Jews. He took them to the Gentiles, to the Greek-speaking people. He stepped out of his faith tradition. He wanted to reach all people. He was known as the leader, the apostle, who brought the good news of Jesus to the Gentiles. But Paul did something that was amazing. Every place he went to, including Ephesus, he would go to the, to the menorah. He would go to the synagogue. He would, and he would always try to bring Jews and Gentiles of people together in faith. The library, Celsus Library, was actually built a century later, but it was near here where Paul did most of his work in reaching out to people of all sects. And, and it says this in Ephesians. When Paul is writing to his friends, he says his purpose, that is the purpose of Christ, was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two thus making peace. He's talking about the ways that Jews and Gentiles never got along. And one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, 
by which he put to death their hostility. You see how God is preemptive against hostility and violence? Look at those words. Through him we have access to the Father. God has taken the initiative through the violent work that was done to Jesus on the cross, and he speaks out of that forgiveness for all humanity. And all humanity, the way in which we will find peace in this world, is ultimately through the power of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if there's one thing that should mark we Christians, it would be that we are people of peace. Now, you and I are living in a time, and I don't even really know, quite know how to say this. We're living in a very chaotic time. And we're living in a time where there's a lot of propaganda all across the board in terms of what's being said about different entities and leaders and groups. And part of the propaganda is true. And there's real concern about justice. And there's really difficult issues. And if there was ever a time that Christians really needed to be thoughtful and engage the real stuff going on in the world, it is now. But we need to do it as Christians. As Christians. We need to figure out a way of doing it as a way in which we do not engage in the hostility or in the violence by words, in propaganda, but in thoughtful ways of response that are constructive. If there was ever a time the world really needed Christians to be Christians, it's now. And what Paul was able to do He was able to bring people together, and he caught all kinds of grief for it. In fact, well, you'll have to find out next week what happens to him. (laughs) But he follows the teachings of Jesus where Jesus says, turn the cheek. Now, to demonstrate what Jesus meant by turn the cheek, I want to ask someone to come up and volunteer. Just come up and stand with me right now. And the tape is rolling. And Justin, I know you wanted to do it. Come on up, man. Thank you, thank you for being willing to do this. And you get the prize today. You get the prize. You get to slap me in front of everybody, okay? Now, before, I don't like this. Yeah. But before you do, here's, here's the deal. Okay. Don't hit me too hard. Okay. The beard helps, but <laughs> a, little cushion. a little cushion. Okay. Um, but use your right hand and uh, slap me on my right cheek. Like one of these? Sure. Just go ahead and do it. He told me to. I did. All right. There you go. That wasn't bad. Now, Justin, Justin slapped me with the back of his hand, and in the days of Jesus, as he teaches this, in the days of Paul, many times a Roman soldier would slap uh, a Jew... Or any superior would slap an inferior, and they would use their right hand, and they would slap on the right cheek, and they would slap probably very much in the manner in which Justin did it. But what does Jesus say when you are slapped on the right cheek, turn the other as well? What is he he saying? He's saying, when I turn my cheek to you, the other cheek to you, what I'm saying is, I'm not going to slap you back. I mean, that's, gotcha. that's the teaching. That's one aspect. I'm not going to retaliate. When we are being slapped in the face by other people, I'm not going to slap you back. 
But I'm turning the cheek where I'm saying, I'm not going to let you keep slapping me in the face. The only way you can hit me now is use your fist, <laughs> all right? Which is what you would do when we were equals, but only when we were equals in that culture. It's, a, it's an important teaching for us to follow, and it's an image I hope that all of us carry with us of what it really means to turn the cheek. Thanks for playing today, Justin. Give him a hand, all right? <laughs> You know, Gandhi said words once when he spoke, uh, if you hate injustice and you hate tyranny, hate these things first in yourself. Put a mirror up to yourself. Always start there. And so you and I are really called in a chaotic world where all kinds of missiles and things are being thrown and it's really difficult to know how we live faithfully as people of justice and mercy and not retaliate in kind but stand up for what we need to stand up for it's not easy is it we fight battles and I want to remind us that the Apostle Paul had his battles too Paul was a victim of violence Paul was a perpetrator of violence before he met Jesus he was one of those that instigated. He was one of those who approved the stoning and killing of Christians. But after he met Jesus, he was a person of peace. And as he strived to make peace among Jews and Gentiles and different groups with, with the gospel of Jesus, he was also drugged to places and whipped and beaten. And in Ephesus, do you know what happened to him? He was drugged to the Colosseum, the theater. This theater has 25,000 seats to it. That's where Paul was drugged to by Demetrius the silversmith who was really hacked off at Paul because, well, Paul was hurting the business. <laughs> Those shrines that Demetrius and other silversmiths, they weren't going quite as well. And so Demetrius creates a riot and the riot leads to this outbreak in the theater and if it wasn't for the magistrate of the town Paul might have been killed right there in fact in Christian history Polycarp a century later they released the lions to him in this place they meant business so Paul knows something about battles and warfare he's no dummy but here's what the old man Paul writes from prison about how Christians are to do battle. In Ephesians chapter 6, he writes these words. He says, put on the full armor of God so you can take your stand against the devil's, the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. In other words, we're ultimately, friends, we're not fighting against human beings. But we're fighting against rulers, against authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. We're fighting against that kind of stuff that acts out in human beings. Do you know what it means to put on the full armor of God? Stand with me. We're going to do this together. And so when you put on the full armor of God, the imagery that he uses is, he says, put on the helmet of salvation. So I often do this in prayer. What does salvation mean? It's God's great liberation. It's God's deliverance from the darkness of this world. And he says, put on the breastplate of, of righteousness. I want the goodness of God to be in me, not just to cover me, but to be in me. He says, be sure to wear the belt of truth. Wrap, wrap yourself around with truth. 
I want the truth of God to be with me. One of the things I pray before I preach is, God, help me to speak your truth. And he says, put on the shield of faith. Keep that with you because you've got to protect yourselves against all the fiery darts of the evil one. And you see, friends, these are defensive measures. If you're uh, struggling with sexual addiction or pornography, you need to wear the armor of God. You need to protect yourself. And, and if you're a man today and you want to help other men or help yourself, I hope you're a part of this Conquer series that begins in three weeks. You can sign up online. But there's two other things that Paul uses in this imagery. It's so powerful. He says, take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. We don't fight the world's battles the way the world fights the battles. If we fight the world's battles in the way that they fight the world's battles, we lose and Jesus, Jesus has suffered. His name is defamed. But the word of God is our sword. That's what we carry with us. That's the only offensive weapon we have. And that's what the world needs. And we put on the good news shoes of peace. It's interesting, in an imagery of warfare and military garb, Paul uses the words, wear the good news, the gospel shoes of peace, so that wherever we go, friends, we are not there to do harm. Jesus said, live as as wise as serpents, but harmless as doves. We are the children of God, and we are called to be peacemakers in this world, and we have a readiness where our feet is fit with the readiness of the gospel of peace. That's what it means, and that's how you put the armor on, and that's how you live this life in the world. You can have a seat. When we left Turkey, uh, Susan and I sat on the aft of the ship, and my wife took this photo of the setting sun, and there was a strange melancholy that came over me. There was a real sadness that I had for the land of Turkey because Turkey is a place of turmoil. It's a place where there's coup attempts and there's ISIS presence. And it borders some very troubled and militaristic type of countries that is up against it. Turkey has always been this landmass that has seen the battles of war. And our good Muslim guide, a real gentleman, says to us, come back to us when this is all over. For tourism is down 80% in Turkey. Come back to us when this is all over. And I was thinking, those words just, just always stayed with me. And we, you and I are living in, in a world where it's, it's, it's very much like Turkey. And we live in a world where there's, there's, we're living in Ephesus. And there's all kinds of temples and there's all kinds of statues. There's all kinds of places that people are worshiping. But we're called to be Christian. And if there was ever a time where we needed to be Christian, it's now. If there was ever a time, church, where we began to realize that we need the power of God living among us and being in our lives and our spirits, it's now. If there was ever a time when Christians needed to be a walking depiction of love and joy and peace, 
and the characteristics of Jesus it is now. If there's ever a time where we need to be in the midst of the world but not of the world, where we ever needed to be fighting the battle, a spiritual battle, with the measures of Jesus Christ, it's now. And so Paul in Ephesians, he writes these amazing words about the church and about Jesus. And this is the key verse of all, that for by grace you have been saved through faith. For by grace, God's steadfast love, God's unmerited favor, God taking the initiative, you're saved by grace. You're saved, you were saved outside of Jerusalem on a hillside by Jesus 2,000 years ago. You, you were saved then. You were offered forgiveness then. You are justified when you accept that forgiveness. You never have to question if God will forgive you or accept you. It was done. That's the heart of God. We're saved by grace, through faith, through trusting in Jesus, trusting in the great measure, trusting in the cross that gives us peace, where we make peace with God and peace with one another. And that is the great gift of God. Not of works. Nothing we earn, nothing we do ever deserves this. So, my friends, today I invite you to be the church. And if you are someone today that has not yet stepped into that grace, I invite you to come and receive Jesus into your life and your spirit today and be transformed like the Apostle Paul and millions of people over the years who have been as well. And for those of us who are truly members of the church, let's be Christian. Let's really be Christians. Let's be little Christ wherever we go.